This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Our scripture this morning is Isaiah 59, found on page 618 in the Black Pew Bibles. 618, Isaiah 59. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies, and from one that is crushed a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none for salvation but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. 
transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away for truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment, so they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit that is upon you, and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring. For out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Amen. Good morning. Let's pray. Receive God's word together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the power of your word. We thank you for the effectiveness of your word. God, I ask this morning as we hear and receive your word that you would make our hearts responsive. God, would you activate faith and obedience in us? Would you let your word have its way with us? God, I ask for a spirit of revelation. Would you take of the things that belong to you and make them known to us? Would you open our eyes, open our ears, and show us yourself this morning? God, would we be able by your spirit to see you as the one who is clothed in zeal and righteousness? and salvation. 
God, would you exalt yourself? Would you exalt your son, Jesus, in our midst, in our hearts, in our minds, in our desires this morning? I ask for his glory and in his name, amen. So seeking to understand the uh, flow of Isaiah's argument or Isaiah's prophecy can be difficult at times for post-enlightenment Westerners that we are. Um, One of my favorite seminary professors used to compare Isaiah to listening to Dolby surround sound that at times he just highlights one of the speakers. So you'll hear the, the noise from the back left speaker or you'll hear the noise from the front right speaker. And at times he brings them all together and he starts this sonic boom, he would say from the front of the classroom of glorying in the majesty and the beauty of God. What we have in Isaiah 59 is one of those moments. And what I want to do before I dive into the text is remind us of where we've been over the last couple weeks because what Isaiah's been doing from the beginning of chapter 56 is laying out these strings for us, these different chords of ideas that in this chapter he's going to tie together and then he's going to put on display a new character in his prophecy. We've seen other faces of the Redeemer up to this point, but Isaiah is going to tie together some of the things he's doing and has been doing, and I think it's important for us to remember where we've been in order that we can see and experience and understand more fully the portrait that he puts in front of us today. So as I've said week to week, if you've been with us, we're in the middle of a, the final major or large section of the book of Isaiah. It begins in chapter 56 and we'll go through the end of the book. And it's a very specific word to the community that finds themselves in between God's promise of salvation and his fulfillment of it. The section begins with Isaiah 56 verse 1, a call to the people, keep justice, pursue righteousness. That sets the tone for the entirety of what's about to happen. He commands the people, walk in the ways of God, that's justice, and stand in right standing with him in right relationship with him, embodying his character and his nature. That's righteousness. These ideas of justice and righteousness as the expression of God's people's commitment to him have permeated these chapters. God's people are to be devoted to him in such a way that their lives are committed to following his ways and living in right relationship with him. Yet almost immediately, In Isaiah 56, we find that these chapters turn again and again to the inability of God's people to embody this. God's called them to pursue justice, keep righteousness, hold on to these things, but almost immediately we see again and again their inability to do so. Chapter 56 turns and demonstrates that the leaders of the people are failing them as they take for themselves and slumber and sleep and gorge themselves in self-indulgent behaviors. 
Isaiah 57 then turns to the people running and practicing idolatry and harlotry with all these other gods. Isaiah 58, if you remember from last week, then portrays these people who are using religious rituals outwardly to cover over places of willful disobedience to God inwardly. We see again and again the inability of God's people to do this. Although each of these promises or these passages has a promise that God will act, the prophet is slowly and patiently painting a picture that, and, and presenting a case that's meant to confront each and every one of us. Much like Paul does in Romans 1 to 3, if you're familiar with this, the prophet Isaiah is showing us that every excuse we have, every prop we create, every place that we might be tempted to deceive ourselves, to believe that we're excluded from God's or the need of God's deliverance and salvation, these are all nothing. He's slowly and patiently weaving a tapestry together, kind of behind the scenes to then turn it and show you, you have no excuse. Before a righteous, holy, majestic, perfect God, all have sinned and fall short of his glory. That's what's happening in this section. Into this context, we get the climax of the smaller subsection. In many ways, the tone of the prophecy is going to again shift next week when we get to Isaiah 60, where Isaiah begins to show what's going to happen at the very end when God fully and finally accomplishes his purposes. How are we going to get into the text this morning is really simple. My desire will quickly move through the text and then spend a significant amount of time applying it to our lives and our moment. So this morning, what I want to do is look at three things. The text invites us into three major sections. The first thing we're going to see is an indictment an indictment. And in this indictment, again, what Isaiah is going to do is take all of the strands that he has put on the table over the last several chapters, and he's going to tie them together. He's going to show us in full and bold relief that not one of us has an excuse before God. Not one of us. Then there's a, a, a turn where the prophet begins to lament and confess before God. And then finally, we'll look at God's action. How does God act and respond in the midst of this? So we're going to move our way through the text. Open your Bibles up if you've closed them. Isaiah 59. Again, there's some connection here. I just don't want us to quickly move past it. Let, before you get to 59, sorry, go back to 58. I want you to see something. In verse 3 of Isaiah 58, what, what Isaiah is going to do in this chapter is begin by picking up on the question that was asked there. Into this context where the prophet begins to indict these people who are performing external religious rituals but harboring places of willful disobedience in their lives, they are presented as this type of people, a nation that 
looks like they want to pursue righteousness and looks like they want to delight in the ways of God and looks like they want to delight in his presence, but they know something's wrong. They ask this question in verse three. Why have we done all these things and you don't see it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? This is an indictment of an offended heart at the living God. They're saying, we do all this stuff for you and you don't notice it. Why? Isaiah does a lot between that question and now, but in case we were still wondering, he starts this chapter off by answering the question. In case there is any question left in your mind, the prophet begins his indictment by demonstrating with clarity that it's not because of the Lord's inability, his lack of power, or his dullness, his lack of hearing or caring, that his activity is held back. Look at verse one of chapter 59. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it can't save. Saying, in the places where you do not see the activity of God, do not perceive that it is a lack of his power. Do not misinterpret the data, is what Isaiah is saying. Behold, God's hand isn't so short that it can't save, and his ear isn't too dull that he can't hear you. Do not presume that the problem is with him, is where Isaiah starts the indictment. Rather, it becomes really clear, really quickly, that the problem isn't with God at all, but rather with the sinfulness of his people. Look with me at verse 2. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you. We see here the reality is it's not God's lack of power. It's not God's lack of caring. It's not God's inability to hear. It's not that he doesn't know what's going on. The prophet puts right front and center. If there's any question as to why this is going on, Look no farther than yourselves. Your iniquity has created a separation. Your sin has created this reality that his face is hidden from you. He goes on in verse 3 to show that this has happened for a reason. He begins to outline what their sins are, what their iniquities are from verses 3 to verse 8. He demonstrates again and again, this is what you've done. Your hands are defiled with blood, your fingers with iniquity, you've spoken lies, muttered wickedness, you don't enter suit justly, you don't go to law honestly, there's empty pleas, you speak lives, you conceive mischief, you give birth to iniquity. He puts on these pictures of them plotting and hatching adder's eggs, doing these works that end in destruction and death weaving together webs, not that can be used for clothing, but are meant to trap and catch others. Verse seven, they're running after evil. They're quick to shed blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation marks their ways. It's a bleak and dark picture. We see lying, deceit, petty retribution, internal plotting, scheming that results in external destruction. 
Paul utilizes these verse if you, they sound familiar to you. In the end of chapter three, as he, uh, of Romans, as he's building the same case that Isaiah is. Now Isaiah does it through pictures. Paul does it by logical statements. He moves from one statement to the next statement, from the next statement to the next statement. He builds an argument. Isaiah paints a picture. He's doing the same thing though. But I want you to hear what Paul does at the, at, in this part of Romans 3 where he brings it all together because I think this is what Isaiah is actually doing. Paul concludes this section on the sinfulness of men by saying, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those that are under the law so that every mouth might be stopped. This is what Isaiah is doing. Every time you might go, yeah, that's not me. Yeah, I'm not part of that. Oh yeah, of course it's the leaders. Yeah, the leaders, they're the bad ones. He then moves to the idolaters. Well, I'm not an idolater. I don't do that. I don't do that. He moves to the religious hypocrite. He is painting this picture, putting all of these strands on the table so that when it's all said and done, every one of our mouths is stopped before God. Not one of us has a claim that we are excluded from what's being said here. Every single one of us finds ourselves uh, indicted. Every mouth stopped is what is happening here. And that the whole world, Paul continues, might be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And he goes on in verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So again, what Isaiah has put together for us here from the beginning of 56, are the people of God are meant to pursue justice and righteousness, yet they were continually unable to do so. Each and every one was condemned before God. Not a single one of them was excluded. For us this morning, we must again see that this is the story of every single person outside of the grace of God. If you have something going on in your heart right now that says, that's not me, then you have not heard. The message is all mankind outside of the grace of God is guilty, indicted, those that practice injustice and unrighteousness before a holy God. You have fallen short of his glory. You might say, I don't run to shed blood. I'm not quick to do all of these other things. I'm not laying traps or plotting. Look at the whole of these verses though. He talks about thoughts being thoughts of iniquity, right? One thought, one thought of iniquity puts you on the stand. Jesus comes along and says a very similar thing in Matthew 5. He builds upon this kind of reality, showing that it's not just the actions of sinning that make us sinful. Rather, for any one of us that hates any one of us that lusts, any one of us that breaks our word, any one of us that retaliates, and not just in vindication by 
externally doing something to the person. Someone does something to you, it offends you, and you spend time in your mind telling that person off, you've retaliated against them. Every single one of us without excuse. We are guilty of breaking the ways of justice and righteousness before a God who requires that. That's the first section of this. It's heavy. It's an indictment. It's meant to make each and every one of us look clearly at the fact that we have no excuse. In verse 9, having pointed out the iniquity, the transgression, and the sins of the people, Isaiah turns and demonstrates the appropriate response here. The appropriate response. The next verses are a lamentation and a confession. These go from verse 9 to the first part of verse 15. But I want you to recognize two things in this section that I'm just going to say and let you go and pull out later. I'm not going to walk through this line on line, but the thing that there's two major things that I want you to see. The first thing I want you to see is the word therefore in verse nine. Isaiah understands that it is because of the sinfulness of people that the effects of sin are felt. He says, because each of us runs after these things. Each of us runs a course and pursues a way of unrighteousness and injustice. Because of that, these realities are far from us. Justice is far from us. Righteousness does not overtake us. He says here, sin has real effect, real consequences, real destructive power over the world. And we feel it. That's what we're getting at here. Therefore, these things are far from us. It's like it's daytime out, but none of us can see. We're all blind. We feel the weight and the effects of sin. That's what he's saying. The word therefore is really important. The second thing I want us to see here, notice the change of pronouns that's happened from the beginning till verse nine. In verse two, you've done this, you've done this, you've done this, you've done this. Verse nine, therefore, justice is far from us. We walk around like groping for like the blind. We stumble at noon. We growl like bears. We hope for justice, but don't have any. We hope for salvation, but it's far from us. Our transgressions are multiplied. Our sins testify. When Isaiah moves from holding up the mirror to turning to God to talk about it, he recognizes that he is the problem as well. Isaiah's done this all throughout. If you remember all the way back to chapter six, when he sees the holy God, he says, I live in the midst of this people of unclean lips, but I have unclean lips. I am the one that is undone in the presence of God. We cannot, when we talk about repentance 
or sin or the need for God to come and deliver and save, we cannot exclude ourselves. And what Isaiah does here is rather than stand on a soapbox and just indict and indict and indict and indict, when he gets to the place of response, he puts himself right up under it and he says, I'm the problem. I am the problem. Justice is far from us. Transgression envelops us. We grope around like blind people. We have sinned. Our sins, our transgressions. He puts himself in the lot, understanding that he is in desperate need of God's redemptive power. We've talked about this a bunch of times in these, this section as well, where I've said, if you sit in this moment or you sit in the moment where we talk about sin or we hold up the mirror and you sit back and go, I'm really glad that they are in the room because they need to hear this. We need to ask the spirit of God to humble us there. We need to turn the mirror back around on ourselves and go, God, what do you have for me? I've thought all week about the famous story of G.K. Chesterton when the newspaper of his day issued a question. What's the problem with the world? Open response, open letters. He responds simply, dear sir, I am. Dear sir, I am. The response of a humble heart before God does not seek to stay in the place of indictment. It seeks to go into the place of God, what do you have for me here? How do you speak to me? We saw this in Isaiah 58 where he said, stop pointing the finger. Stop looking at everybody else and going, if you would just change, if this would just change, if this would happen, if you would just get your act together, wrong, God says. God invites us to say, what do you say to me? How would you ask me to respond? What have my transgressions, my sins, my iniquities, my falling short of your glory, what have they done? So we see that as well in this confession. The last thing that I want us to look at is God's activity, God's action, how God steps in and what he does in response to it. All of these verses and the movement of this entire section is meant to get every one of us to a particular place. What we're meant to see and feel and understand is that we are utterly and absolutely hopeless. We're invited now to look into God's vision, his purpose, his assessment of the situation. He looks at his people and he sees that there's no one, absolutely no one, to do anything about the problem. The people who were meant to embody justice and righteousness, to demonstrate his character and nature to the watching world, were marked by injustice and unrighteousness, so much so that even their religious rituals were just a front for them to do more injustice. We saw in Isaiah 58. Read Isaiah 59, verse 15, the last part of it. The Lord saw and it displeased him that there was no justice. Remember, his ear isn't too heavy. It's not that he doesn't know what's going on. It's not that he's unaware. The Lord saw it 
and he felt something about it. It displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Do you feel the weight of that? The displeasure, the sadness, the hopelessness here? You could, your mind could go back to the story of Noah in Genesis when the author talks about God being sorry that he had made man. There is a weighty heaviness here. God had a purpose for mankind, a glorious purpose to live near him in righteousness and express his glory to the ends of the earth. Yet no one could do it. Adam couldn't do it. Abraham couldn't do it. Moses couldn't do it. The children of Israel being given the law of God itself could not do it. Generation after generation, God waited for a man, suffering long with a stiff-necked people for thousands and thousands of years. Why? Why? To demonstrate that there was no man to stand in the gap, no man to intervene. God waited, waited, watching, knowing, looking in displeasure that there was no justice, that there was no one to step in, no one to stand in the gap, no one to accomplish his purpose of righteousness and justice. But God was not willing to let it abound. He wouldn't sit back and wait forever. His arm was not so short that it could save. His ear was not too dull that he couldn't hear. When there was no one to intervene, we see in verse 16, he himself took action in accordance with his own glorious power and brought salvation. Look at this in verse 16. Then his own arm brought salvation and his righteousness upheld him. What we see here is a new portrait. A new portrait, a new character, if you will, emerges in the prophecy of Isaiah. One that's particularly suited for this section. Up to this point, what we've seen is the Davidic king who would rule over God's global kingdom for all eternity in righteousness and peace, letting the boundaries of his kingdom expand to the ends of the earth forever and forever where the nations would come up and learn his law and walk in his light. Then we saw the suffering servant, the one who would serve and lay down his life as a ransom to pay for the sins of his people, that God might provide forgiveness. But here we see a different picture. We see an anointed warrior, a conqueror, one who will go out to war not to forgive sins. We've seen that in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 demonstrates God's forgiving power over sin. What we're going to see in this section is a portrait of God as the warrior who will go out to wage war against sin and the effects of sin in order to bring true and lasting justice on the earth forever. Here we see God suit himself up like a man of war, clothed not 
with metal armor, clothed not with steel, but clothed with his very attributes, sustained by his own righteousness, covered in his own zeal, in order to wage war against everything that brings injustice to his creation. This picture demonstrates that he is committed to his ways and his character, and that we will see that fully demonstrated in Jesus Christ. So look at this, verse 17. He put on righteousness as a breastplate, a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing. He wrapped himself in zeal like a cloak. This action ends in the retribution and the judgment for all of his adversaries and enemies. The action ends in his name being feared throughout the earth as his wrath rushes over people like a powerful stream. According to their deeds, verse 18, he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. So they will fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. We see God here fighting against the power of sin and its effects in the world. God hates sin. God hates sin. And so what I want you to even see in this moment, the the silence that seems to maybe exist when we look around the world and we see unrighteousness and injustice and wickedness abounding and prevailing, do not in this moment believe that God's hand is too short to save or that his ear is too dull to hear that. He sees it all, he hears it all, he cares about every single one of them, and he will arouse himself like a man of war, wrapping himself with zeal and vengeance to deal with sin, its power, and its effects in the world forever. That is reality. And this action will end also in salvation for those who turn to him in faith. Look at verse 20. There's a redeemer that will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from their transgressions. These won't experience his zealous wrath, but will experience his redemptive power, those that turn to him, who lay aside transgression, who cast themselves upon him by faith. Again, what we begin to see here is a portrait, not just of a God who pays for sin through sacrifice. We see a portrait of a God who wages war against sin and its effects through his creation. He is a righteous judge who will not allow injustice and unrighteousness to prevail. This passage demonstrates to us not only that the Lord is working to provide salvation in the places where sin has made us deserving of judgment, We're really good at talking about that. Sin has created separation between us and God. We deserved his wrath. We deserved uh, his, his righteous retribution and we needed forgiveness. And we'll talk about forgiveness a lot. And that's beautiful and powerful. And what we see in the sacrifice of Jesus is the means by which he creates the possibility for 
him to forgive sins for those who come to Jesus. But this passage also demonstrates that God is zealous to wage war against the effects of sin in the world. The outcome of sin in the world is injustice. And this gets expressed in a myriad of ways. God is committed to bringing redemption where his creation has been ravaged by the effects of sin and the curse. God here through the prophet Isaiah promised that there would be a day when the redeemer will come to Zion and bring restoration and redemption. What Isaiah saw in fragments and pictures, we get to see in bold relief. So how does God wrap himself in the garments of a warrior, sustained by righteousness and zeal, and war against sin and its effects in in creation? I believe as those that live in the new covenant, there are three ways that we get to see this happen. I just want to spend the last little bit of our time talking about these three things. How does God demonstrate his zealous war against sin and its effects in the world? How does he do that? I'm going to give you three things. There's probably more we could do here, but I'm just going to give you three. The first one, God wages war against sin and its effects in the life, in the death, and in the resurrection of Jesus. Though the face of Christ as a warrior was mostly hidden in his first coming, right? We see more clearly the face of the suffering servant. The New Testament is clear to tell us that though he was wrapped in clothes of humility, he was giving himself to the point of death, there were other things going on. He was waging war against sin and its power. We see the New Testament is clear that Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection won a decisive victory over the power of sin, both in individuals who come to him by faith, meaning he breaks the power of sin. He breaks the power of sin in our lives and in the world as he has victory over sin, over death and the devil. One of the passages that I love in response to this, how does Jesus's life, his death and his resurrection demonstrate the zeal of God to wage war against sin is Colossians 2, 13 to 15. We see both the individual realities of this and the cosmic realities of this played out before us. Paul says, and you, you were dead in trespasses, the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. There you go. You've got this uh, reality of the power of sin over you individually as you come to God through faith in Christ is now canceled and broken, that power. But it doesn't stop there. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross, but he did something else at the cross as well. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. God, in the death of Jesus, wrapped himself like a warrior with zeal and might and salvation, and vengeance, and won a decisive victory 
over the principalities and the powers and the dominions of this world. He put them to open shame. He displayed once and for all that their power is broken for any and all who will see by faith. So first we see God wages war against sin and its effects in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The second one, which we only see whispers of here in Isaiah, but we see really clearly through the New Testament, and this is going to shock you, I think. God wages war against sin and its effects by empowering spirit-filled believers to submit themselves to his righteousness, come into agreement with his truth, and to stand firm in his power by grace. We see that God wages war against sin and its effects in the world. God rides out like a zealous warrior by empowering spirit-filled believers to submit themselves to him, to come into agreement with his truth, and to stand firm in the war that is waged in this life by his grace. Let me give you some scriptures here. We see it whispered at in Isaiah 59, 21, the covenant that God is going to make with his people is the spirit that's upon you and the word that's in your mouth will be upon your offspring and their offspring and their offspring and their offspring. The indwelling spirit and the word of God will be this covenant that God makes with his people. Let me just give a few scriptures from the New Testament that demonstrate this. Romans 6, 11 to 13. Paul, in laying out the glories of the new birth, begins to say and show, now that we've received Christ in faith and new life in him, forgiveness and right standing before God, it means something for us in our lives. As we continue to walk with God in in the place of faith, he says this, so you must consider yourselves dead to, st- dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Sounds a little bit like dominion and war, right? Don't let sin reign over you. Those who are now in Christ God, one of the ways that he wages war against sin and its effects is by empowering spirit-filled believers to change what, they are, uh, uh, what their allegiance is unto. Paul says it this way. He says, don't present your members to sin. When he says members there, he's not just talking about your body, though that's partially true. Don't put your body, your eyes, your hands, your mouth, any of those things in the way of sin. Don't present them to sin. But he's also talking about your faculties, your mind, your heart, your emotions, your desires, your will. Don't take those things and put them in the way of sin, Paul says. He says, you have a new master now. Take those things and put them in the way of God. Present yourselves as alive from the dead in faith that you might serve a different master. He says, take your thoughts and rather than 
running the old patterns of thinking that you always do. Renew your mind by the word in agreement with the spirit. Present your mind to God as alive from the dead. Present your emotions rather than being uh, pressed down by clouded and dark emotions tossed around to and fro. Present your emotions to God as alive from the dead. Your desires, your will, the members of your body. One of the ways that God wages war against sin and its effects in the world is by empowering spirit-filled believers to submit ourselves to him in obedience. Another verse that I think here is Revelation 12, verse 11. We see this cosmic war, you can go read it later, where the dragon, the devil, is cast out of heaven and he attacks the people of God because he knows his time is short. And into that, the writer of Revelation says this about God's people. He says, they conquer him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. They love not their lives even to death. What we see here is one of the ways that God deals with the effects of sin and its power in the world is empowering spirit-filled believers to walk in accordance with God's ways. Not in perfection, not all the time. We stumble, we sin, we need to repent and receive his grace, but we receive the gift of the blood of Jesus that washes us and forgives us and breaks the power of sin over us. And then with our words, we give testimony to the truth of who God is. I don't have time to really unpack it, but one thing I think is amazing is that Paul, the last verse here that I want us to just see, what Paul does at the end of the book of Ephesians is he takes all of this imagery that God does and he puts it in your, on your body. He says, you have the breastplate of righteousness. You have the helmet of salvation. You want to know one of the ways that God wages war against sin and its effects in the world is he bestows these things to you that you by his grace might stand firm in the day of trouble. In the day of trial, in the day of hardship, he takes his zeal and his righteousness and his character and he by his spirit empowers you to put on the helmet of salvation, to put on the breastplate of righteousness, to gird your loins up with the belt of truth and to stand firm in the evil day. It's unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. The last thing that I want us to see, and again, this is just going to be a seed that I plant. We'll talk about this more in the weeks to come. This is one of those places where Isaiah is like a really good uh, uh, composer. It's like a beautiful symphony. He's going to put in a little theme right here that he's going to pick up and elaborate later. The last way that God wages war against sin and its effects is that the second coming of Jesus, when he will judge the wicked, he'll put the final enemy, which is death, under his feet, and he'll establish his worldwide kingdom forever. We'll see this more clearly in the coming weeks in Isaiah 63, 
But it is important to note that there will be a day, and we have to grapple with this. We don't maybe talk about this as much as we ought. There will be a day when Jesus will be seen fully as the anointed conqueror. He'll be seen as that. Where that was veiled and is now seen by the eyes of faith, he will break open the heavens, come back on a cloud, ride out into battle, and literally destroy everything that stands in his way. Everything that is unrighteous, everything that promotes injustice, he will purge the earth of it forever. He will openly and perfectly display that he is the anointed conqueror who wages war against sin and its effects forever, forever. And we'll again see that more in the coming weeks, but that is one of the ways that he does it. There will be a day when it's not just by the eyes of faith that we see his victory over sin, over its power, over death, over injustice, over unrighteousness. There will be a day where every single eye will see that and every knee will bow. Either bow in allegiance to him in faith or bow the knee as retribution for sin and unrighteousness. That day will really happen. There's a day planned in the Father's heart when the sky splits open and Jesus Christ will eradicate the earth of injustice and unrighteousness. So as we come to the table of the Lord this morning, I actually want us to have those realities full before us. One of the beautiful things that the picture of the anointed conqueror does for us as the people of God is it, it puts on full display the severity of sin and how much God hates sin, which then allows us as the people of God to delight in and glory in and celebrate the reality that he so demonstrated a desire to extend mercy that he would give his own son that we might not have to bear the consequences of his hatred for sin, but that we might be able to receive his mercy and his life and his love forever. So as we come to the table this morning, if you believe that reality, I wanna invite you to come with joy and receive the, the reality of your salvation by faith as we come and we take of the bread and we dip it in the cup. We have wine in the stoneware and juice in the glassware. We'll have servers in the front, the middle, and up in the balcony. We also have a single serve to my right, your left. If you're in the room and you don't put your faith in Jesus, I wanna ask you to not come and take this meal. This meal is a, a meal that we participate in that, that points to a reality. The meal does not 
accomplish something for you. It's not a religious ritual that God favors or that he looks at with some sort of merit. What I want you to realize, though, if you're in the room and you don't put your faith in Jesus, you are without excuse this morning. There is a holy God who created you for a purpose and you have fallen short of that purpose in your sinfulness, your transgression against him. And there will be a day where he will come and wage war against all that is set against him. But he provides a way. By faith in Christ, you might have life in him. So this morning, I want to plead with you to look at Jesus Receive Jesus. Take Jesus by faith this morning. There is a way for you for your sins to be forgiven, for you to be brought into the, to life with God, into his family. But if you don't receive that, don't come and take this meal. We have prayers in your, in your cards, in the seat backs on cards that would help you maybe talk through uh, with the Lord where you're at. But stay in your seat. We're glad you're here. But we would plead with you to receive Jesus. I'm going to pray for us. For those of you who are coming, the servers are going to come forward and we'll come and receive communion together. God, thank you that you are just. Thank you that in the sacrifice of Jesus, you actually, like Paul says in Romans 3, you demonstrate both that you remain just and that you are the justifier of those who will come to you in faith. You don't deal lightly with sin. You don't deal lightly with its effects. You, your arm is not too short that it would save. Your ear is not too dull that you can't hear. So God, for those of us in the room who believe in you, we delight in you this morning. We receive again the fresh Um, reality of our salvation and we ask that you would come and you would conform us more into your image? Would we see you as the one who is zealous and righteous and holy and would in beholding you in that, would we be transformed more into your likeness? By faith this morning, God, would you come and feed us and nourish us? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.